0: oh fuck it's ESPN that's just gonna autoplay video god I fuck god damn there it, I just, it I, is, I was, there god it is god there she damn is. it it's just yeah. so uh, bad
1: listen to me the human world it's a mess life mm. under the sea is better than anything they got up. damn Cause she don't know me, but yo, she's really fine You know I see her all the time, maybe where I go Even in my dreams, I got a scheme ways to make her mine Cause I know she's living
0: back a boyfriend's tall and he plays balls Hello and welcome to your Let's, Let's Football, football this week Sorry about the long weekend uh, schedule Evan and I took a break because it is Thanksgiving here in the United States So, uh yeah, Evan, did you, uh, do you have anything you're thankful for this year? Uh, I mean, I'm thankful for bad takes. Always thankful for bad takes. We are, and we're focusing. We're gonna be focusing much more on bad takes because there's so many of them, and because, um, to be quite frank, they're funnier. It's funnier to do that, um, and it's funny to just. Uh... There's so many that've been building up for a while too. We're still. There's still this whole article that we're not going to get to today about Cristiano Ronaldo that I'm really excited eventually to
2: talk about, but not today. <laughs> No, there's too too many other bad, terrible things being said in the football football universe, but we will have time eventually to talk about this this really awesome Ronaldo bad take.
0: Yeah. All right. And before we start, I just want to shout out to um, the Torbe- Torpedo Kutaisi in Georgia, who um, won their league this, uh, today. But the way they did it was in the last game of the season, playing against Dinamo T- Tbilisi. uh, At Dinamo Stadium, they're the best team in Georgia, like historically, with a tie, Dinamo would have won, but if Torpedo had won, Torpedo wins, they win, so in minute 70, Torpedo scores, and then, minute 95, penalty for Dinamo, amazing it looked like it was absolutely rigged. It was not. Most people did not think it was a penalty, but then, amazingly, will missed the penalty, and there was a huge fucking riot. And it <laughs> was exactly what you'd expect. So, huge shout out to those guys because that is a absolute bonkers way for an entire season to end, hinging on a missed penalty in minute 95 of the last game of the season. So that rules. Um, but in this case, just to take it all the way back, last weekend it was the North London Derby, where Spurs did
2: not really show up Evan. No, they, they really didn't I mean I w- I woke up I showed up I woke up at like freaking 430 in the morning Because I was on the West Coast to watch this match and I was very sad that I did um, I almost have nothing to say of substance about the match um, The Spurs were really bad and Arsenal were like fine and we could I could talk if I wanted about how both goals were Kind of gifted a little bit by the refs, but who really cares Spurs looked like garbage and whatever it was crap
0: Yes, it was. But here's the interesting thing that has spawned a series of extremely interesting bad takes about Arsenal and how they're probably good now and how Spurs are terrible. So let's, let's just quickly lock into the first one. I'm interested in talking quickly about uh, an an article on ESPN FC time to take Arsenal seriously. Again, the Emirates is a changed place. And what's amazing about this article, Evan, is that first of all, I really just don't think it's true. Like, that, by definition, is true. That statement in and of itself. Because they, they've they sucked all year and they still suck. And, like, just because you win one game at home against you know, a side that's been actually really good this year doesn't mean suddenly that the side you beat sucked or that you're way better than them. This is a ridiculous article talking essentially about how Arsenal actually are better than everyone's saying? I mean, like, how do we
2: get into this?
0: (laughs) Where is, how do you crack into this?
2: So I think there's two, two points that I want to think about. The first is, okay, so I think we can give Arsenal a little bit of credit and ESPN a little bit of credit. I think Arsenal has won something like eight on the bounce in the Emirates, um, you know, including the, the win in the North London Derby. So they're playing well in the Emirates right now. So congratulations, you're winning at home where you should probably be winning mostly against teams that you should be beating. So good job. Um, the second part about whether or not, you know, Arsenal's problems are solved, like Spurs were crap. And I can't I think it would be ridiculous to say that anything that Arsenal did made Spurs bad. Spurs had no verve, they had no energy, they were not linking up, they looked tired. Um they've been playing this ridiculous run of matches that has included United and Real Madrid and Dortmund and like almost least of all Arsenal. Um, and so, and Spurs seems to be in a pretty, you know, bad rut of league form. So like all these things come together to make this, you know, claim that suddenly Arsenal is fantastic again, really suspect. And I think that that only plays out with the fact that they were fucking garbage today against, uh, Burnley and only won with a marginal penalty in the 92nd minute. And otherwise they weren't able to break through. Like this is still an Arsenal side with big questions. It's still an Arsenal side that basically can't put Mesut Ozil in the team because he doesn't want to play. Um, And no one wants to play with him. And it's still a team that almost certainly Alexis Sanchez is leaving in January. If not, um, you know, in the summer, he's gone for sure. Like there's no way he's staying. So like to say that all the problems are fixed because they won a North London Derby is completely ridiculous. All the same problems are there that were there three weeks ago when we were all talking about whether or not they were, you know, really top four material.
0: Though I I also want to say that this this article is hilarious because like the way that this this the argument that he's making. So sure they you can be a you know a, a change side at home and like have have a series of like good home performances, but that is essentially meaningless if you don't have at least semi consistency on the road. You're not going to be a, a team that's going to be challenging even for European spots, much less for you know one of the top uh roles in the, you know all of England right like it's arsenal's expected to be in the top 4 every year but if you're losing every game away from home and winning every game at home it's really you're not getting enough points to be in the top 4 so and he he uses <laughs> as an example like how this arsenal team is somehow turning it around he cites three results the fucking four nothing loss at liverpool in august the one nothing loss at St- or versus stoke i think uh and then he said, OK, but those were bad. But, you know, it wasn't bad. Arsenal's three to one loss to City. It was like <laughs> they lost that game and they not just lost. If you lose three to one, unless like you're getting you're scoring on yourself or like the ball's bouncing in five times off posts or whatever, you're not like beating or presenting a good face to the world in that kind of a game. Good God.
2: Yeah, no, it, it's it's. I don't know it's just so frustrating and this is exactly what happens when there's a big you know when there's a game that everyone's paying attention to which in this case was the North London Derby and you know you have a result that looks lopsided and runs counter to narrative right so the narrative before this was Spurs are ascendant Arsenal um, was struggling and um in, in you know that was half true in the sense that Spurs were ascendant and Arsenal were struggling it was also overstated to the you know, extent that Arsenal are still a, you know, competent top six side and Spurs, um, you know, are still are not, you know, they're not the best team in England. So it can be overstated. And this ran against the narrative. And so everyone needs to make a big fucking deal about it. Um, but you're completely right when like he can't even get around the fact that those really, really shitty results from earlier in the year, they're all still there. They all still happened. It's not like, you know, they have now one good result on the other side of the ledger against Spurs in the Emirates, but they have nothing to counteract or nothing to, to prove to us that they can beat good teams on the road.
0: Right. And, and even the, the result against Spurs does not by definition mean that they've changed their season around. I mean, like, it's just absurd. So, but interestingly, you, you would mention that because our second bad take regarding this match, right. is from our, our friends. And like, I say friends because I know these guys, but this, I think is very stupid. Uh, you know, and they they are welcome to come on the show to defend themselves. Um, from our friends at The Short Fuse, there's an article called Why Narratives Are Stupid. And narratives, first of all, narratives are stupid, but they also allow us to kind of frame the way we view both the world and, you know, sports, you know, kind of specifically, right? So as you said, this was the narrative going into this match. Spurs are ascendant, Arsenal in decline, right? And you're basically talking about a, uh, you know, a team, one team that is, finally achieving a level of Champions League success that the other team now has dropped entirely out of the Champions League. It looks like these two sides have flipped each other on their heads. Like Spurs, you know, are by all accounts a better side than Arsenal. And I would also make the argument that one game doesn't prove it. To their credit, I don't think the, the short fuse guys are saying that very much unlike the ESPN FC, who had the first like real knee jerk reaction bad take. This is a more thought out bad take because it's all about money. So let's talk about this, all right? So here, here's, here's the, the couple paragraphs that I just want to read. Um, at first glance, sure, Spurs are ascendant. Spurs had a great season last year, finishing second and not winning a trophy, while Arsenal's streak of consecutive Champions League appearances stopped at 19, and Arsenal finished outside the top four for the first time in Arsenal Bankers 20 years as man- manager. Given the evidence of that one season and of the overall improvement in Spurs' quality under Mauricio Pochettino, it would be very easy to buy into that power shift in North London narrative should you be so inclined. It would also, however, be wrong. Why? Economics. For for all of Spurs' recent success on the field, they're about to enter into a period that Arsenal know all too well, the period in which they're building a stadium and have to pay for it. The difference between Arsenal Stadiums and Spurs is substantial. It's estimated that Spurs Stadium will cost around $800 million pounds, sorry, when all is said and done. And in all likelihood, will cost more as construction is just getting started as compared to the total cost of the Emirates. So basically they go from there right to show, or at least purport to show that Spurs financial condition is in a huge amount of trouble, uh, compared to Arsenal's. Now let's, let's be clear. That is, I think at best a reach, right? I'm looking at this, right? But like, this is, I think at best a reach, and at 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 most like a big bit of like spur or arsenal fan fan fiction because the difference between you know a a a stadium deal that you signed back in the day and a new stadium deal is that as long as the team is performing the way Spurs are performing which I don't see any particular reason to suggest they'll stop you can always renegotiate certain terms of the debt in order to keep the team performing well and racking up money
2: yeah i mean this is a weird one for me because, on the one hand, like, I guess it's, you know, that's why it's a well thought out bad take because there's a kernel of truth here, right? Arsenal do have more money than Spurs, and that's not a real, like, that's not a question. That's a fact. Um, they do. The question is whether or not that has anything to do with the point that they're trying to make. So, if the point they're trying to make is, Um, oh, Spurs are not actually the ascendant side because Arsenal have more money, well, they're missing a couple logical steps there, right? Arsenal have been notoriously terrible at spending their money. They don't buy good players. They have terrible transfer strategies. Um, Like, they just, they don't get it done, and that's really, frankly, why they're in the position they're in right now. So, okay, they have the money to potentially, you know, buy players to replace Alexis and Ozil when they inevitably leave because they've been mismanaged. Um, But who... Who on that blog has any confidence that Arsenal is going to spend that money wisely on players that are actually going to make a coherent squad? And who thinks that Arsene Wenger is the guy to hold that squad together um, and and kind of craft it into, um, you know, into a coherent, uh, coherent team? I you know the spurs for their lack of funds have done those two things they've spent their money really really smart and they have a manager who's doing a really good job putting together a coherent squad and so they're winning more matches they're winning more points like that's arsenal's problem like that's yeah. what's making arsenal worse it's not the money and that you know and, and and so that's why the money just kind of misses the mark a little bit and so while Spurs might have a little bit of a lean time for a couple of years while they play off – while they uh, pay off the stadium, which I'm not even sure they will because their wage bill is a lot smaller and the um, TV revenue is just astronomical now compared to when Arsenal built their stadium. So I'm not even convinced they're going to have a yeah. lean time. But they, we, they don't need to bring in a bunch of big players. They have Harry Kane. They have Erickson. And you know if these guys leave, they're going to bring in enough money to replace themselves. Um, right. So you know, it just it's it's just reducing it down to the economic numbers. Um, well, it's just reductive.
0: It is, you know? and it's also that I think that what what's an interesting aspect of this, right, is that they're arguing essentially not only are Spurs kind of peaking because of the economic factors, they're basically arguing the economic factors have put a ceiling on where Spurs can go. They're also saying that Arsenal, who should have an even higher ceiling than Arsenal than Spurs are actually more consistent. They're like, they, well, actually, they're not getting worse. They're just being consistent, which is finishing third or fourth, uh, unlike, you know, 2015-16 uh, and uh, 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 this last year where they finished fifth. So basically they're, they're basically saying that, yeah, Arsenal has basically over the last like 10 years been the third or fourth best team in England every year, which is an actually unbelievable self own like if you're writing a <laughs> whole article about how yeah. spurs who have finished like second in most of the last couple of years is like really in trouble because of whatever like economic situation then you point to yourself saying well we have way more money than spurs and then say by the way we're not being you know we're not <laughs> we're not actually like worse than spurs because we always finish third or fourth you're fucking an like absolute self-owned like it's like yeah, like you guys are literally making the argument that you don't know how to spend your money as well as Spurs do with this exact thing. Like you're making an economic argument and then saying, by the way, we don't know how to spend our money. It's an unbelievable own. And like, I don't really know where they get the idea that uh, like this is like a, like a, a thing that they should be like combining in a single article. Like, oh, well, look well, how how impressive like Arsenal's and- finances are. And, and versus Spurs, by the way, Arsenal is always fourth.
2: And there's another angle to that, game. So let's actually – so they have this chart, right? And this chart actually makes this point about how Arsenal can't spend their money right and why the economic – the raw economic numbers don't – bear out to Arsenal having a better future (laughs) because so let's just talk about some of the points on here. So wage bill, 195 million pounds for Arsenal, 100 million pounds for Spurs. You mean Spurs play, pay better players, less money than Arsenal. Wow. That seems like good business. Yeah. Oh my God. It's such an own. I can't believe looking at this. They have a worse squad and they pay 90 million pounds more. They're paying Ozil more than anyone on Spurs to sit on the bench. Yeah, it's it's, it's it's such a fucking
0: own, like I can't, like you're looking at this and they're like, oh, by net, the way, like we're always fourth. It's
2: like, net Net what? transfer spend, $210 million to Spurs minus seventy six $76.76 uh, million. So you're telling me that Spurs have put together a better team while not putting out $200 million in the red in transfers, that they fund their transfers through sales, that they develop players and then sell them for profit and then use that money to improve the team? What a crazy concept. Unbelievable. Right. And that's Spurs have
0: committed. It's, what's amazing about this also, Evan, is that it's also simultaneously showing that while Arsenal has never essentially changed managers, so you would think that they always look you know, at a long-term strategy. What it really shows, if you're spending that kind of money to always finish fourth, it, what it really shows is someone who is running the club who actually doesn't really understand the transfer market doesn't understand how to plan for the long term, and has knee-jerk player buy-and-sell
2: reactions, which I think is a classically correct take on the way Arsenal does business. No, it's it's 100% right. Like, these numbers and the results completely match up with the hashtag narrative that Arsenal does bad business and that Arsene Wenger has no idea what he's doing. And look, none of saying that this is a bad take is not to say that Arsenal won't be better than Spurs in five years. If they hire um, Tuchel, um then sure, you know, they bring in a real manager who actually knows what he's doing and they start using these resources better, then it absolutely could flip again. But as long as Wenger Wenger's in charge, don't just cite to me the broadcast revenue that Arsenal gets and tell me that they're going to be the better squad.
0: Right, exactly. Um all right so let's like just quickly move forward. Um I think we're just gonna jump jump right into MLS. So you know, obviously there was Champions League games. There's plenty of stuff to talk about, but you know that's not really going to be our focus grooming forward. If you guys want like specific, you know, overarching European football coverage, there are hundred thousand podcasts out there. We're gonna do. We're gonna go. Like I said, going forward, we're gonna cover the probably a bad take from Europe, and then MLS and bad takes regarding American soccer, and then maybe do a reading series at the end of each article. So that's kind of what our our, our focus is. And the interesting thing is, uh, Evan. We actually have a lot of MLS shit to talk about.
2: Yeah. So we're in the we're kind of in the middle of the never ending MLS playoffs right now, where the first leg of the Eastern Conference and Western Conference finals have been played. So just to update people, it was a nil nil draw between Toronto and Columbus. That was in Toronto. And uh, Seattle that no, was in Columbus. It was in columbus it was in columbus that's right. why the zero is bad yeah yeah yeah. For why toronto. the zero is very bad for toronto so it was in columbus you're right and then uh seattle beat houston two to three or three to two sorry um, um i think that's right with, yeah which oh, is no, actually
0: is. um yeah yeah uh which is actually a really terrible result for houston so like seattle was in houston goes up to nothing two away goals uh right away and that looked like the tie the fact that houston even brought it back at all is is a testament to them so actually it's not a this tie is not over the, even though it looked like it was after about 30 minutes of this match when you know seattle had, had broken through twice to score two away goals which is huge uh but yeah it's only one goal different so you know Houston has to win by more than one goal, basically because of the total amount of away goals scored and I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about because so Seattle Houston was actually a really fun game, and Columbus Toronto wasn't and But I wanted to talk about why actually it makes sense the more sense the way Columbus sort of approached their game than the way that Houston did, which Houston came of came out and wanted to play and and hit you know Seattle and Seattle kind of broke through and and kind of took advantage of Houston's you know, really lackadaisical defending. And the problem with Houston's style and the problem with generally with two-legged ties, especially in the United States, is that they reward home teams that come out just to shut it down and not concede. And I'm not saying that's what, Toronto, what Columbus did, but Columbus effectively had a very solid first-leg result while, you know, Houston didn't and so but at the same time because Columbus didn't win and because they didn't you know put away any of the chances that they had there's this narrative forming about them that said that the the break slowed their momentum blah 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 but what what I think is crucial is that a zero zero this is this is what happens in a zero zero uh, first leg the team that was home for that leg goes into the next leg where any scoring draw wins them the tie right any scoring draw. And any zero zero draw goes to extra time. So that actually by itself, that the, the the range of outcomes where Columbus goes through is vastly higher, right? Yeah, than no, it's, the it's range a, of outcomes where Toronto goes through, and
2: just by itself, that's a huge victory. That's a massive advantage. It's it's one hundred percent the smart way to play these two legged ties. Like if you unless I mean sure, if you're you know think you're significantly significantly better the other side, then all by all means just beat them three nothing in the first like leg. That's, right, that's better. But, you know, with these high-pressure, you know, elimination two-legged ties in a reasonably close matchup like you have between Columbus and Toronto, um, yeah, you just play for that draw. That's 100% what you do in the first leg. And you just – you're going to have to play a second leg anyway. Um, You might as well have, you know, the greatest number of kind of combinations of the dice favor you advancing. And that's exactly what you get when you don't give up that away goal. Yeah. Um, there's just so, there's just so many ways that it can go right for them. And we saw this in pre in the previous, um, um, you know, this is kind of how it played out in Houston and Portland's, uh, two-legged tie in the, in the last round, right. even though Houston ended up, did end up winning two, one, um, in the second leg, it was one, one for most of that. And Houston was able to just sit back and defend and eventually hit where a second goal on the counter because right. that, because that one, one draw takes them through. Right, exactly, and and what's what's really interesting about
0: the match then in in, in Toronto, right, is that so if you're if you're on if you're yeah you know, look if you're Toronto right, you're looking at this in a situation where any one goal lead is not one goal away from you having to go into extra time. It is one goal away from you full on losing the tie because, mm-hmm. as we said, any scoring draw uh, puts Columbus through. So the effect of that is any goal that. For, for every Columbus goal, Toronto has to score two, and I don't think people realize like how big, how huge that is, because of the away goal the power of the away goal any, like any moment right, with uh, you know, where, where Columbus were to break through Toronto, and look, Toronto's a solid defensive team and they're getting back both of their playmakers so yeah, sure, but I think that any any take that you're reading right now that says that Columbus are, are really underdogs here is a mistake simply based on that zero in Toronto's away goals column.
2: Yeah, I you know, I, I get the feeling just from like glimpsing at Twitter and some some, you know, more casual coverage of these matches that a lot of American right. sports analysts do not understand the away goal rule ro- away goal rule. They don't understand how it works. They, to a certain extent, think it's stupid. Um, we know that you know Red Bulls was complaining about it after their tie with, uh, with Toronto. And you, you're, you're 100% right. They need to pay more attention to how it works. And I think MLS needs to consider whether or not this is really the best way of organizing the playoffs. It's not just the away goal rule that annoys me. It's also the huge lull between matches here. So it's like it's eight and nine days between the first and second legs, which just seems like a really long time. People fall out of interest. There's not other football in the U.S. or other soccer in the U.S. going on to, you know, to either keep our attention or even justify the nine-day layoff. Like, I'm not sure why we're taking nine days right. between tie one and tie two. Like, in you know, in, in the Champions League, it makes sense because you're playing, you know, you're playing league ball in between. Um, I don't really get why there's nine days. It It, it just all seems so sluggish. And um, it and it just seems like it um, kind of kills the momentum of the playoffs playoff structure a little bit.
0: Yeah, it definitely no, like it definitely does. And it it on top of all of that, right? It it also makes it for a series of people you know who who don't understand you know the game at all to to whine about you know this this thing that they perceive to be an inequality, right? So like away goals is something that you have to essentially you have to grow up with to think is fair. <laughs> because <laughs> it actually yeah. I think when you stand back it actually is quite dumb and it really does privilege uh you know the the you know the the team that goes away from home first like well, whatever I mean,
2: it's kind of it's kind of like penalty kicks where it's the you know it's the worst way of deciding the tie except all the other ways of deciding the tie Um, like what are you, you just going to play extra time at infinium at the, uh, at the end of the second leg. And then that's unfair because now you, you know, now you're still privileging the second person, you know, who gets to play that at home. Like there's no good way of figuring this out. The home and home tie ultimately is going to have to have a tiebreaker and, you know, for better or for worse, we've been using the away goal for quite a while now and it seems to work okay, but it it is kind of counterintuitive. I think it works okay because
0: everyone buys in, right? It's one of those things where if, if, there were people that didn't buy in, then it would be a very different thing. But everyone in the media in Europe, everyone just kind of buys it. They're like, all right. So going into the next match, like, and then they'll run down the scenarios that I basically just did with Toronto Columbus. That's a very common, like, European media thing to do. But in the United States, like, we just don't do shit like that. And this just is more evidence, right, that we need to have not just single game, single game playoffs. Like, I I get it. I get why they're trying to do it this way. But first of all, the two... You know, the two-legged tie playoffs make the playoffs very long. And because of the international break and the way things are scheduled and and the Thanksgiving holiday, let's not forget that that's one of the reasons we didn't have anything this week. Like that, uh, the way these things are scheduled essentially makes it so that uh, uh, the the, the, extends everything out way longer than it needs to be. A single match playoffs would allow them to wrap up by Thanksgiving and arguably before the international break. You know, there. So that to me,
2: that's a that's a huge deal. <laughs> like that is well, that is no, by it's itself it's ju- like a
0: reason not. No, to do that it.
2: that's a massive deal, and it also makes a lot of sense given the the fact that it's a playoff structure. So, like in Europe, the home in the knockout terms, the home and home um, ties make a lot of sense because you they're trying to eliminate home field advantage. There, that's their goal um, is to eliminate home field advantage and get the you know fairest your or most complete result, however you want to think about it. If you Think about it in the American context, though, like this is not a standalone knockout tournament. This is the playoffs that are at the end of a regular season. It wouldn't be unfair to do what other American sports do and give the home field advantage to the team that had the better regular season. Right. It makes in fact, it
0: that is important. a concept that we really, really get like we get right. why, you know, uh, we understand the regular season. <sighs> way with if in a, in a, in a league that only has a playoff structure as a championship giving enterprise it makes sense to reward yeah. the regular season teams with the best record because otherwise regular season right. games essentially don't matter and like right. they, the only question is oh did you win enough to get into the playoffs at that point it doesn't matter so yeah let's re- let's reward the regular season winners with uh, home field through the playoffs and then help hold the fi- final itself at a neutral venue. That is the traditional American way to do it. And I think that that's what we should be doing in soccer.
2: Yeah. And I think that, you know, MLS might object and say, well, they make more money off having extra games. But I actually think that that's, I think that the, the, the drama So I think a single elimination playoff will be much more marketable. It will have much more drama, much better storylines, and it's going to be a lot easier to make. You're going to make a lot more money off the playoffs as a whole with better storylines and better coverage and rules that make sense to American viewers than you are just, you know, having extra games with 20,000 people in the stands that almost no one watches.
0: Right. And 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 right. The next step. Because the and I think it is true that the two-legged ties do lead to more like fair outcomes, i.e., that teams that actually are good go through. Uh, But that's the the thing is that Americans actually like to have these weird Cinderella stories, and you know they happen occasionally in Europe, but it's very much rarer than say the NCAA tournament or whatever, where it's winner go home. And uh, in this in this country, like we like that. We we're actually okay with. Teams that we think are a little bit worse winning matches and like collecting silverware just because they happen to catch fire at the right time. We actually kind of like that in this country. Yeah, of yeah. So.
2: We're more than okay with it. I think that that's what people want to see. Like, people, like the reason why the NFL drives for parity so hard is because that's what everyone wants to see, right? They want to see the underdog come in and, um, you know, and that I mean, every single American sport playoff is essentially set up to be a lottery. Um, because other than maybe the NBA basically, um, because it creates really good storylines. It's fun. It's what Americans want to see in sports. I think MLS needs to try. They need, they always need to think when they're deciding how to run the league, how do I make this the most attractive version of soccer for Americans? Right. And that's one big way to do it is craft the playoffs into something recognizable to Americans, even if it's a little bit weird for Europeans. Absolutely. And, um, well, also, I would, I would, I would mention that, like,
0: you know, you, you, you really hit the nail on the head with the with the way to pitch it, right? It's a story that you're selling to people about this stuff, and more people will fucking tune in if they know exactly what happens. But if you tune in to watch a soccer game and you don't, you're not, you're only a casual fan at most, and the end of the match, you're like, all right, so who's going through? The, you know, it's a playoff match. You say, who's going through the next round? And then someone turns to you and is like. Well, there's another game. You're just gonna be like, wait, I just wasted my time watching this game and not the elimination game. And I think that actually is the reaction of a lot of like yeah. non-European soccer or even like non-Latin American soccer Americans following Americans. So, like, I, I think that, for example, the large contingent of Americans that follow both the MLS and like the Liga MX and some of the South American sides actually would understand, do understand the two-legged tie system, but like that. Is not the like that 's not the only market that these people are trying to hit and actually, if you create a single tier elimination structure it's much better and it's better for the league to have i think you really hit the nail on the head with the idea of. Always look forward and how to market and how to this sport to Americans, C- given the coming football apocalypse. Essentially, that people will be looking for a secondary sport to follow in case, like, they they have another apocalypse like the football one, where the entire game is going to be upended. Right.
2: The, so, the the NFL has made billions upon billions of dollars not on hardcore supporters, but on the casual fan. Right, the person who sits down and tunes in because it's an event on Sunday, right, or watches the Super Bowl because it's a cultural event like that is where um that's where they've made all their money um and that's where mls needs to grow like they already kind of have a committed soccer base it's about you know right now it's about getting casual fans to enjoy the sport and that makes means making it relatable and understandable
0: right and on top of all this right the uh uh the single elimination single game elimination structure encourages team to score That's a big deal. It encourages teams to go out and try to win. And that by itself will end up with arguably more attractive football. And the truth is, right, like if we look at uh, the World Cup, right, like, yeah, you can have like these cotton style like teams you go through like. In the in the worst ever example, it was Greece in two thousand and four Euro Cup, which was the most boring, least pleasant Euro Cup ever played. I bought, and I, I think anyone would agree with that. That was listen that that watched those matches would agree with me that Greece was the least fun ever. Uh, but those those tournaments are far outweighed by the tournaments where the the teams played well and they all played to win and 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 you know they're depending even you don't even need to score lots of goals to win like the spanish team that won the 2010 world cup was not a team that scored tons but and they also didn't let in tons right but they played very pretty so all of that being said I i want i want to turn to uh the bad take that's related to the columbus match evan if that's cool
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. The the focus on this match has brought us a fantastic bad take.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so I think the context that you should know is that the for first of all, the crew stadium, Matt free stadium, was packed. It was a hundred percent full house, and the supporters lustily, lustily booed Michael Bradley, US men's national team captain, Michael Bradley, every single time the man touched the ball. So there are two bad takes that are related that I wanna that I want to talk about. First of all, uh, OK, first of all, there's a there's a guy, I think it's Grant Wall on Twitter, who just basically went on this tirade, you know, essentially cussing out all the Columbus supporters for booing Michael Bradley, saying, oh, is it is his fault for the rest of his career that uh, that the US Finns national team failed to qualify? You're just going to boo the guy everywhere he goes like he's a yeah. good guy, folks. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, it's his for- fault. You know what? Fuck yeah. that. Fucking <laughs> boo him. Absolutely boo him. Also, like, who are you to say to an opposing team's fan base, like, how to treat the opposing team's... The the opposing team. They're not throwing anything at him. They're not, like, fucking hurling flares or whipping bottles at the other team's keeper, like you see in leagues. Like, they're just booing one of the players a lot. Every game that Real Madrid don't play in the Bernabeu, and some that they do, people boo Ronaldo. Like, every touch. He goes to fucking Valencia. Every time that man touches the ball, he's booed. So, like, suck it up like good god this is a basic part of soccer fandom and also you know what michael bradley should feel bad about the u.s meds national team he should feel fucking terrible and every single person involved in that should feel fucking terrible and should and deserves to be booed except christian Pulisic. every single other person
2: does. oh and and it's worth pointing out it's not like bradley played a good match against trinidad and tobago and the rest team let him down. he was Bad, like he was garbage. Bad. Yeah, he was um, j- absolutely it was terrible. Really, really horrendous. So, like, he should be made to feel bad. And no, I don't think he's gonna get through the rest of his career. But we're talking about like the third time he's been on a pitch since the catastrophe. Um, I think it's still a little okay.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. And you know what? I also feel like if you're in the playoffs. And you know that, like, Bradley is a defensive midfield catalyst for Toronto. It's totally fair to boo the crap out of him if you think it might get in his head also. Just to help. Like, just to help your team. Just Yeah, just because he's their star player, you can boo him. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, so after the match, Bradley was asked about, um, you know, the Save the Crew people and the crew supporters, and he was feeling a little salty. And so he, he had a little bit to say. He said, uh, well, I feel bad for the, quote, small group of loyal supporters End quote. But he also added, quote, you cannot deny the fact that things have really fallen behind. End quote. So that oh, is God. infuriating because, first of all, you can <laughs> deny it. You can deny it. You can. You, we spent all of last podcast denying it. So,
2: yeah, we, we yeah, talked dude, first a so lot about that. Yeah, so, yeah, no. and I mean, like 22,000 people were at this game, like you said, booing him lustily. The idea that, 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 that in that game you could see it's falling behind is just stupid. It's so stupid. And then
0: on top of it, this quote, small group of loyal supporters is such a fucking douchey, salty, whiny piece of shit thing to say about a group of people who, you know, there's not much that's good, right? If you're like a you know middle income kind of person just trying to make it through your life, there, there are only a few things that you can really take solace in. It's like your family and, you know, sports are a huge part of people's lives just because it allows them to kind of take some time out to focus not necessarily on their shitty lives, but also but on their on their team and kind of project this, you know, sense of camaraderie with their with their fellow, you know, Supporters and like to belittle like this group of people who may very well soon have this one aspect of their lives ripped away from them is extremely obnoxious to the point that he might as well just fucking whipped off his his shirt at the end of the game to show like, uh you know, some something like with the fucking logo of the city of Austin, Texas on it like it's fucking terrible.
2: Well, and and this other aspect of it, and you alluded to this in a text when we were talking about this before, the idea that Michael Bradley is going to talk to us about a soccer program, quote, falling behind is fucking infuriating. (laughs) It is the height of – oh my – I mean I I don't even have words for how annoying it is and how how much it pisses me off that he would talk to us about how Columbus has fallen a little bit behind. You know who fell behind? The U.S. Men's National Team fell behind. Yeah. Columbus – Columbus is in the Eastern Conference Finals. They're competing for a championship. Where the fuck is the men's national team next summer?
0: Yeah, the men's national team, you you cannot deny the fact that things have really fallen behind at the U.S. men's national team. And I do feel bad for the, quote, small group of loyal supporters. You piece of shit. God damn yeah, you- it.
2: And you know what? He's the fucking captain. So he gets to fucking own that. He is the captain of the national team that failed. They didn't just fall behind, they fell flat on their face. I don't want to hear shit from him about anyone else. Anyone else's team, how good they are, how bad they are. Retire, go away, just be gone.
0: Yeah. All right. Um <laughs> I don't think there's anything else to say about that. I just I it's an absolutely infuriating thing because I just It's, it's fucking terrible and, and really obnoxious. So the, the kind of segment on the really interesting series of bad takes that we have this week is for some reason, this was the week that like a lot of big, you know, analysts decided to just go off on expected goals. Uh, as you know, from listening to anything that I talk about, Evan and I talk about, uh, well, we both buy into the idea of expected goals because they make sense as a concept. Why don't we, you know, kind of control uh for other factors and then suggest like based on nothing like based on historical probability, shots of this type of type and from this place have an x, x percent amount of chance of going in and then you can extrapolate from that to, you know, a kind of general and very like Not precise, but a general view and understanding of how lucky
2: or unlucky a team gets. That is the whole point of expected goals. To, you know, to put it most simply, it measures the quality of the shots taken by the different teams, or you might say the quality of the chances, but it's because it only mention you know, measures actual shots. It's, it's the quality of all the shots taken is measured, added together. You get this figure that we call expected goals, and it's roughly supposed to say, you know, on average, if you take this many good shots, this many shots of this quality, you'll probably score, you know, in the long run, this many goals. And it comes out to a fraction and that confuses people. But it'll be like, "Oh, you know, one point seven to point seven or something like right.
0: that right and and um it's actually a really, I think a really brilliant and a really good stat. It's not the end goal, right? it's the beginning of a long you know trek towards these kind of you know predict not even predictive, but just these kind of stats. That we saw on baseball, and we saw the exact same fucking reaction by the by these fucking you know gut instinct is the only thing that matters type you know commentators about these stats well, but we like, should before we talk to the
2: reaction, we should probably play our clip
0: right okay so um the clip that we 're gonna play uh is so it 's from uh, uh it's it's actually a a british site um And it's only it's only about 30 seconds. I'm going to play it. It's um, Jeff Stelling on uh, Sky Sports just ranting, ranting about what was, I think, a huge victory for the advanced analytics movement in soccer, where I think it was Jose Mourinho came out and said, hey, like, we actually didn't play as bad a match um, or as as unbalanced a match as it, it looked on the score sheet. We our expected goals were, were actually pretty similar. And that's a big win. That's a big get for the expected goals co- contingent. Like Mourinho yeah. saying anything in a about it is, is big for us. So I was very happy to see it. And these guys who, of course, are these ghouls who have absolutely no ability to process it, as you will see, were not happy. So here, let's play this clip.
1: And he said, this you know, this was expected to be a close match. He said, look at the expected goals. It was 0.7 for them and 0.6 for us. Well, he's the first person I've ever heard take any notice of expected goals, wow. which has to be the most useless <laughs> stats in the history of football. What does it tell you? The game's finished 3-1. Why do you show expected goals afterwards? It's absolute
0: nonsense. And if he again. really believes that, well, I, I don't think he can. Anyway, look up. What I also like about this clip, Evan, so you 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 heard the kind of classic series of things that that you would expect to hear from someone who is basically whining at the way the game that he thought he understood is advancing, right? But what really what really strikes me is when he starts yelling about what could he possibly mean by that? And then at the very <laughs> yeah. end he says, and this is I think the really like incredible moment, right? Well, I don't really think he believes that, which I think you have to think that if you have this opinion of expected goals. Well, there's no no way that some soccer like a genius or someone who at least has a you know does this for a living and, you know, really understands the game. There's no way that person right could understand or really believe in expected goals if you don't think that expected goals really exist. Right. You say this is a stupid stat. This is a stat that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't tell us anything. And it's stupid that Mourinho used it. But because Mourinho is not stupid, the only next logical step that you can possibly have, if you have this opinion, is that Mourinho doesn't believe it.
2: Yeah, I mean... You know, we we've fought this battle so many times before. You know, in broad scheme of things, it was fought in baseball with WAR and so many you know wins above replacement, so many other statistics. And you know, in those cases, I don't even think the the accusation ever was, "Well, you guys don't believe it." It was more. Um, You know, it wasn't so much you guys don't believe it. It was more, you know, it's not as good. We can do better, right? We can use our eyes to see which pitcher is better. We can use our eyes to see which batter is better. And you know, the old ways are better. And I think that everyone's pretty much on the same page at this point. The old ways are not better. And you know, analytics is basically taken over baseball. Like that's the only way to build a baseball team now. Um, And it's happening in basketball. And to a certain extent, it's happening in foot in you know American football. And soccer is like the last bastion of kind of, the, especially right. British, especially British soccer is the last bastion of you know the gutting grit way of interpreting sport. And um, and so you know we're you're gonna have these holdouts who just just are unable to believe that there uh, right. that there's truth down there, you know, in the data, in the numbers. Um, and you know, it's not just that you know he was ranting; everyone was groaning along with him. Um, it's just so annoying because they, like I said, cause we've done it before we've, we've been there before.
0: Yeah. And so I, I, I'm, I'm just going to shout out to some of the other people who, who also talked about this. So Irish journalist, Barry Glenn Denning, um, was the one that some, someone retweeted it, uh, onto my feed. That's how I found this. Cause obviously I don't watch sky sports. I don't have that on my TV. So this is how I found it. He says, yeah, Stelling is spot on here. At some point, not too far from now, imbeciles twatting on about XG will be pinpointed as the exact moment that football ate itself. And I wanted to bring this up because, of course, it's funny to think about someone in an Irish accent t- talking about this. I don't know why, but it's just a, it is for me. <laughs> like, but on on top of any of that, like what, the reason I wanted to to share it is because I. This, I think, is another version of this, right? Like, it's the, 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 the kind of old school baseball people were saying this all the time and then uh, trying to dismiss the, the analytics stuff in baseball. Like, oh, you got you idiot nerds talking about this shit. Baseball, that's what's making baseball fall apart. Not the fact that the game takes four and a half hours and uh, the pitcher can take. 20 steps off the mound if he fucking fails to and the guy can call time for whatever and and no one wants to go and the sport is super duper white and the only people that are actually like good in the sport are latin americans and we don't care about them like that kind of stuff like this is you know this is exactly the the same version of this different like take on analytics which i think is funny
2: yeah it's yeah, yeah, I don't know. I what else like is Like pinpointing there the, <laughs> the, the the faults in in, in
0: sport to the analytics movement when in fact there are other much more obvious issues with the sport is basically the t- the type of take this is.
2: Right. And I mean the guy the guy is clearly echoing this idea that You know, when you break it down to the numbers, you lose kind of the soul of the game or something like that, I guess, Um, which I've, you know, heard different variations of before, like it's going to eat itself because we're just going to get caught up in, you know, how far someone runs or how many passes they have and what's next. Are we going to have, you know, expected pass completion rate or, you know, whatever. Which would be awesome. That's a great idea. (laughs) And like, that's, that's not good. Soccer is about soul and grit and spirit and heart and all these other stupid things. And the... What is most ridiculous is anyone who's followed how analytics has worked with you know, baseball or basketball um, in in America knows that that is not what's happened with analytics coming becoming involved. It's not – the game has not become some soulless quest for numbers. It is still human beings on the you know, playing field, whatever it is, who have to perform. It's about getting the best people in the best positions to perform and using data to find out how to do that. Um, right. That's all. Ex- all ex- expected goal is actually a really rudimentary analytic stat. Like there is that. That is like that is not even as advanced as WAR because it doesn't right. tell you anything about individual players or how good they are compared to any other players. It just tries to quantify for you, you know, the overall play on the pitch. Since goals, right. since soccer is a very low-scoring game, that means there's high levels of variance, essentially luck in what goals go in, so it tries to quantify for you what happened the rest of the time with every goal that didn't go in. That's all it tries to do. It's really rudimentary. Um, and I guess, you know, getting the pushbacks on the one hand, not surprising. It's also a little discouraging because you know, the hope is that we get more advanced soccer analytics going forward. It's a really hard game to do analytics. I've been told by people who know how to do this because you know, the, there's not as many th- valuable things to count. And right. like, so coming up with all the different data points there's you both, need is really complicated. There's
0: both too few and and too many data points in a soccer game to make sense of. So if you, you, you can break it down to the level, literally of every single pass and every single step taken, you can do yeah, that right, too with much. players running, but that's actually, I mean, it's not probably too much, but it's also very time consuming to track because we don't have computers that can do that really. So you right. have to do a lot of this by hand and you know that that's an impossibly hard thing to do. So then if you t- you you take away that, you say okay, the only thing we're going to count is passes, like interceptions, all this stuff. Even that actually is t- not enough because of the way that soccer is about manipulating space and putting people into space. What you really need to do is to understand it as like a, each move not just of the ball, but of players, how much that move itself like that in an, in a vacuum you know leads to the next if you want a predictive stat but that's the thing this isn't even trying to be predictive right these people reacting to this stat as if it's predictive it's not it's literally just the first level base cut of how do we measure the function of luck in a game and that actually is an incredibly useful thing but it also is not something that you can it's something that is a post hoc thing to do not a you are know, a pre-hawk, right? Like you can't right. go into a game saying this is how we're going to take our expected goals. <laughs> but yeah. And- you come out of a game and analyze it saying, well, look, actually, like the stats are showing that this team, you know, took enough shots in enough places that are, that are considered good chances that they should have scored. And these people say this shit all the time. And they
2: say, well, look, he really should have scored from there, uh, John. The th- that That's the other thing, right? So beyond just saying, oh, he should have scored that goal, or you have to take that one, oh, you didn't work the keeper hard enough, like what's head-scratching about his critique of how Mourinho used this, right? So he just came out and said, if he had just come out and said, huh, you know, I think that was, you know, the, the result was lopsided against the run of play. I think we were better than the score sheet showed. Just classic soccer coach stuff, right? Everyone would have been, they would have just talked about whether they agree with him or not. Yes, it was against the run of form. No, it wasn't. All expected goal is doing is quantifying that, right? It's giving you a metric to say whether to one metric that gives its opinion based on the data that it uses, whether it was against the run of play or not. And Mourinho is just saying, hey, this is one part of my argument that, you know, the result was lopsided and, and a little bit unjust that that what. That's why I'm having a hard time understanding where the critique of that is coming from is because these guys are used to the basic argument here.
0: Right. Right. And the so, basic
2: argument that something can be against the run of play.
0: Right. And so that leads me to the last version of this that I wanted to talk about. And it's a friend of mine, um, Danny Page, uh, who who I, I know vaguely, um, and he he I think rightly points out that analysts. Uh, the people that understand X goals like us and then people that talk about them and use them in our analysis, right? We get accused a lot, right? Of not explaining expected goals well enough. Right. And so we, and especially by these same exact people. And then these people go on a rant that I'm about to show you from an editor at ESPN, Alex Shaw. So Alex, he's so close to being understand, like understanding what expected goals are and why they're useful but he just tossed just veers off at the very end, and it's 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 shit. So all right, here's the, here's here's his argument. As far um the as far as my thick brain allows me to know, the quality of a chance is in, in part calculated blurg based on historical shots slash chance chances from similar positions. But that's just a load of shit. A simple quote should have scored. Does me. Uh, and then someone responds, yeah, well, look, I admit there, there are limits to expected goals, just like any any sane person who understands the metric would do. There are, of course, limits. This is not a, like a shot from Ronaldo from 20 feet, 20 yards out is a very different thing than a shot from some center back from 20 yards out. Of course it is. But that doesn't mean that this this stat doesn't have merit, right? Like there are differences in the quality of chances based on the, the quality of the players taking them. It's and fabulous.
2: and maybe, and maybe one day we'll have a stat that is something like shot, you know, finishing above replacement or something like that, right. That can quantify how much better Ronaldo is as a finisher than you know, I would be because, you know, or, or, you know, any other random player right. would be, the, you know, and, and that's a next step that you can take where you can start talking about, okay, not every, you know, okay. So expected goal for people that don't know really, really value shots from game. You know, right. right in front of the goal, like four yards out. Um, Like, that's the danger area. It gives huge value to shots from there because historically, if you take shots from there, you score a lot. When Harry Kane takes a shot from there, it's a really big difference than, you know, if the ball falls down to, you know, Jack Wilshire or some other more mediocre right. finisher. Who you we know, insert player you want to shit on here. So, we might want to measure that, but… But that's not what that 's not what 's being measured yet, and everyone acknowledges that, and nobody is questioning that it, This is the first step into analytics for soccer is the point
0: right and so and he finishes his argument by saying essentially that when when confronted with that argument right that there there are a lot of factors, but this is one of them that that is is helpful when you 're looking at a match and, and talking about analytics, he says, and this is an infuriating opinion actually, because we do also hear this a lot, and this is why I hate it i don 't care for the science. my opinion on a chance. Would be different to someone else's. Why should numbers have to be used to quote prove who is quote right? Okay, so the problem with this, right, is that actually it is really helpful in an analysis to be able to go back to say to yourself, okay, so my view of this game was these series of things. I think this team had the better of the run of play, and then to look at the expected goals, and a lot, a lot of the time, expected goals bear out the the feeling that you have if you're experienced enough analyst. This feeling you you have of one side being better, and 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 this is the problem with this this line of thinking. It is a an ana- analytic. Analysis tool. And that's what analytics essentially means. If you look up the definition, right, it's a literally a tool for analysis. So if you don't want to use that tool, fine, but do not like be annoyed when other people decide to call upon that tool when you are making a point that they think doesn't, they, all personally, aren't don't think backs up, or they think there's a there's a reason to think that you're wrong in your analysis.
2: Well, that's the thing, right? There's this weird kind of subjectivism that he's inserting here, where it's like, well, my opinion is as good as anyone else's, and you know, you sh- you know, why should you be able to muster this type of argument against my opinion? Well, are you saying that we can never have a sports debate about whether? So let's just take the ba- you know the individual. You know, point he's talking about whether or not someone, quote, should have scored, which is how he's breaking down an individual data point for expected goal. Um, Are you saying that there's no possible debate about whether or not a player should have scored? And if you're allow if he would allow that there can be discussion, then all we're saying is the historic rate at which players have scored from the same position is a relevant data point in resolving that discussion of who should have scored. Right. Right. We're not saying it's the only thing. He might come back and say, yeah, well, you know, those were not Cristiano Ronaldo and this was Cristiano Ronaldo. And so Ronaldo should have scored, but other players maybe shouldn't have. Like that'd be a fair comeback for any individual data point. All we're saying is that this is a relevant data point, a relevant metric in trying to decide that question.
0: On top of all of this, I just want to also – also add, right, that if you actually think about what he's saying here and what his job is, right, as a as an analyst and editor at ESPN. He is an analyst of this sport. This comment is an extremely brutal self-own because essentially he's saying that all analysis is opinion and therefore yep. all analysis uh, analysis does not take on the number 1 quality that people want, which is people trying to find the truth or some, you know, Co- closer to correct than not understanding of the things that happened in the world. So if you're like, you're literally paid to be an analyst and to analyze the things that happen in a soccer match and to, to give your, you know, absolutely give your subjective opinion on it. But your opinions are supposed to be premised on data and your opinions actually can be right right and wrong. Like, it can be your opinion that, well, Cristiano Ronaldo really should have scored that shot from the midfield line, but no one is going to agree with you, and you can have opinions and hold them, and it's your right to do so. But analysis is about people discussing... And, 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 and critiquing and understanding the world and presenting arguments about the way a certain understanding of the world is correct or not, right? Like this is a unbelievable own
2: on his entire profession. <laughs> like, right. No, he's basically calling into question his entire value added to the discussion of sports, right? Because if it's just opinion, then just go talk, you know, just show the shot to your buddy and just chat away because there's no value added in having someone like him who's theoretically experienced and has watched a lot of games and, you know, brings a lot of historical knowledge um, to the game. But I'm sure he doesn't really think that. I'm sure what he does think is that because of his kind of more ephemeral soccer knowledge, he is able to make a clearer, more professional assessment. And but that's only another way of saying that he is doing what expected Gold does in a less systematic way. Right. He's bringing his own historic, you know, all the soccer he's watched in the past and bringing that to bear on this particular question. Right. It's the same thing, it's just less systematic. It's so stupid. I I I I mean I got to tell
0: you like look, obviously I think that analysis is you you should take it with a grain of salt even when people like you and I speak cuz the truth is we don't even know that much like we don't know that much, but like we do I think when we make our points we suggest like the reasons behind them and make the case for them which is really what analysis is and like if if all it is is people just sharing opinions without any like synthesis and agreement about like a general understanding of what's going on then there is no point to analysis there's like just go to the pub and have a fight with your friend about which team was better which is one of the reasons people really like sports right they like to have these fights but What we also provide is a modicum of trying to understand what went on. And you can marshal the arguments that we make against your friends in the pub. That's a big part of this, right? Right. That's the thing is –
2: (laughs) <laughs> just yelling at just yelling at each other gets boring really quickly, and I think that this is a slightly more American version of how to be a sports fan, where you know in America we've we have a longer tradition of statistics. They were more rudimentary, but like baseball has always been a stati- statistical game. Um, it was mostly counting stats, but people were very comfortable with the idea of the counting stats, right. um, and in measuring players by you know not what you saw on the field, but by how many home runs they hit or RBIs or whatever. Um, And, you know, maybe Europeans are just a little bit less comfortable. They have the most basic counting stat of all goals. And then beyond that, there's kind of not much else assists, I guess. And then it is, you know, I bet you in a lot of pubs in England, it probably is just a lot of tribal yelling at each other. But hopefully these kinds of stats will... You know, they, they give, they make it more fun. They give you right. more to talk about exactly. like That's the whole point.
0: It'll make the tribal yelling at each other more fun. Right. It just does. And like these stats tend to bear out, like I said, what you're like, what the basic level of the game is when you watch it. Like they do like these, this, this is a, this is a, not a predictive stat. It just is a, is a descriptive stat, which is the whole point. And like, we want to have a fight about how the game went and you can call upon stats to make the point that you're making and that's cool <laughs> that's good yeah. and that's why stats exist
2: all right and i have i have all my favorite ways of trying to say why x goal might be wrong in a particular game for when i think it's wrong and that's fun too hell yeah absolutely and like you and
0: just having a basic like a even a rudimentary understanding of x goal you're allowed to allows you to say well in this case like i don't think it does a good job like there are games where Teams are tied in X goal like Mourinho called, used used it, but actually his team was sort of run off the pitch. So yeah, you like it doesn't necessarily absolutely accurately define. The oh, an- game another played. good
2: example is Madrid and Spurs match where I think the X goal came out to something like two in change for Spurs and one in change for Madrid, but it turned out that Madrid added a lot of those um expected goals in like the last 10 15 minutes of the match when Spurs were kind of dropping back and right. and not playing on the break exactly. anymore so like that was a place where where I was arguing that, you know, it was actually more lopsided than X goal had, you know, where the, the result, the final result was actually you know, the three, one result was actually better represented the game than X goal. And yeah, I think exactly. we can argue about how true that is, but you know, that's why people misunderstand the stat, how it's used or what it, you know, what it's even trying to do. Yeah. All right. That is, uh, your, um, let's do football this week. We will be back
0: next week. Um, so Yo, send us your bad takes. I like the. We're gonna frame the show um around these different topics every week, so we need to keep. well, we'll Obviously, we'll do our homework, and
2: obviously, people like it's not like bad takes are just gonna dry up. So I'm excited. People are gonna see. Yeah, people are going to keep saying stupid crap. And the more of it you send us, the more we have to talk about. So please send them our way. Exactly. Exactly. All right, buddy. It's good talking to you. I'll, yeah. I'll, yeah I'll talk to you soon. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye. Now, I'm the king of the oh, the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop And that's what's bothering me Come on. I want to be a man, man cop And stroll right into town And be just like the other men I'm tired of moving around Oh, I want to walk Yeah. Don't touch the nigga, you might burn his head. We got a man in this bitch, you know the water on him. We got a man in this bitch, you know the water on him. don't touch the nigga, you, you might burn his head. I don't touch the nigga, you, you might up. burn his head. <laughs> we got a man in this bitch, the water on him. we got a man in this bitch, you know the water on him. Here we go. Now you see the alcohol spillin', and we got a pants in the ceiling. You know we only come to rat on the building. and break it on down just a little bit. Once again, no when we we'll holding the bench so let me keep the dice rolling and keep it traditional The way I keep my money falling While you're slacking on your back, and you, we always keep it going Right to the left Do it to death Now watch me come through With a chisel And make the game chisel And I pull out the skillet Dead for the cooking How my modern niggas Wonder when I'm gonna bring them up. And dogs ice grilling Every time you get the looking Got a mile I know easy All the way back to go Real Now they ready to spaz Cause we bring the best of them Shit to shut it down On the right Get a new best of them the Flying 80's nigga That was whipping in the crescent Impressionant Most of these niggas The, rest of them. the fellas that was thinkin rushing and it, but the way do was rushing. Now, don't try to kid me, man. I made a deal with you. What I desire is man's red fire to make my priest my you Now give me a secret, man. Cub. Come on, conclude me what you do. Give me the power of man's red fire so I can be what he is. It's true. Sugar Little, can me? You do can don't touch me, nigga, you might burn yourself. Don't touch the nigga, you might burn yourself. got this bitch, don't to want to want to want to